Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have our crew here in the studio. Good afternoon, Bob. Hey, good afternoon, guys. Afternoon, Brian. Hello. Good afternoon, Philip. Hey, guys. And we've also got Dr. Bob Weber with us. Good afternoon, Bob. Greetings, gentlemen. So happy to have you with us. And we've got a great episode today because we've got several listener questions that we need to address. A little bit different today in that we're starting out in the afternoon. I always say good morning to you guys. We record in the mornings, but due to weather and other circumstances, we're recording in the afternoon. So if it sounds a little bit different, it may be because we're off after lunch. So I wanted to find out from you guys, I want to know two things. I want to know, A, your best hour of the day to be productive, and B, your hour of the day that you're least productive. Bob? Well, I'm going to go with least productive right after lunch. Okay, like right now. That's why I asked this question is because I thought that I thought we were in the sweet spot. That's yeah. fine. And and honestly, I kind of like first thing in the morning, but I'm actually, I kind of have a, a revamp late in the afternoon too. So first thing in the morning, late afternoon, I'm pretty productive. Okay. The middle part's not so good. Okay. <laughs> so we're just see how so long that really, middle part you're is. Really good at, you're really good at working from 8 to 9 a.m. and 4 to 5 p.m. Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't limit it to an hour on the 10. Brian? Most productive, probably mid-afternoon, mid to late afternoon. I'm not a morning person, so usually it takes mornings. Probably my least productive, actually. Philip? My most productive, I think, is usually in the morning, as long as I don't get interrupted. The least productive kind of depends on lunch. If I eat a big lunch, then right after lunch is not very productive. But if, if not... Then probably that last hour of the day, about four to five, is probably my least productive time. That's when Bob's. That's what Bob's hour of work. <laughs> <laughs> Second shift for Larson. Right. For me, it's it's usually, um, if, particularly if I'm working from home, kind of the five thirty to six thirty in the morning. Go knock out some emails, make a plan on the day, and a cup of coffee. And it's mostly because it's real quiet. No interruptions. Uh, no interruptions. Um, if if I'm not working from home. Um, anytime I can close the door and escape, um, but it gets, it gets a little crazy. So it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. At least productive, usually the hour after lunch. Cause it's sometimes hard to get refocused. So. Awesome. so by my count, I think we've got four out of five of us that this is our least productive hour of the day. So we'll see how this we'll podcast how it goes. goes. <laughs> might be the aberration. We might get something done today. <laughs> so, th- so this is a good, we, we always appreciate when people send in listener questions, we've got three good ones. Two of them are related to genetics, and we want to get Dr. Weber to weigh in on those. And one is related to nutrition, and we'll get Dr. Lancaster uh, actually related to BMR corn. The other two about different crossbreeding. And I want to start with the first one because there's several components to this where they're talking about the, the first one. The owner said, I don't really see the type of cattle out there that I want. I would rather breed my own cows to beat my goals and if I want to create my own replacement heifers or have my own line, my own composite. So when I start to do that, what size herd do I need? And then the follow-up question is, you know, what's the minimum population so that I can maintain adic- adequate genetic diversity? Yeah, so I guess it's to me, huh? Yeah, that's yeah, everybody's okay. looking at <laughs> Well, I think it, it, it's a really good question and one that, that – that will require maybe some conditions on on the response but um, there are some good reasons to have a desire to, to go and kind of do do your own thing and of course as cattlemen in the United States we're, we're kind of famous for that um, and some of those might be uh, you know if you live in a region where 
um, we've lost uh, uh, populations of locally adapted or environmentally adapted cattle. So um, if that's the case, you know, if you're in a really harsh environment, say the Gulf Coast or uh, the desert Southwest, you know, mainstream kind of genetics from popular breeds in the Midwest likely are too big and too much lactation potential to fit your production environment. And so there's some, some real desire and need uh, to have those locally adapted genetics um, uh, propagated in, in your environment. Um, if you don't find yourself in, in one of those, staying in sort of the more mainstream groups of, of populations will give you some advantage just in terms of selection um, quantity, the number you of You just bulls. have more bulls. You got more from. bulls to pick from um, and genetic evaluation uh, to go with it. So so there's some good, some good reasons to want to, to, to build your own. One of the, the principal challenges will be um, you know, what, what purebred or composite lines do you combine to build your own product, if you will? Um, and what tools do you use to select those animals? So, uh, you know, selection index or EPDs, uh, DNA tests, so forth. Um, if the population's really small and not part of a mainstream genetic evaluation, that's going to add complexity and, and I would argue, um, less opportunity for long-run success because you don't have those tools to be able to monitor genetic change in your population. Um, and notice I didn't say genetic improvement, I said genetic change, right? So in some of these cases where we may need really moderate-sized cows and low levels of lactation, the EPDs tools provide us a mechanism to monitor that and so we don't lose it as a drift in, in selection. Um, which is common, right? So if you go buy bulls from some producer, you inherit um, their genetic trend, right? You're, you're a reflection of the main population's movement in genetics. And so um, without some diligence, you can kind of lose track of that relatively quickly. So, Yeah, one of the things, maybe that's where I was getting to, is the cost is you, know, you can be a pretty small herd and retain your own heifers with the caveat that you're usually going to go then outside to get bulls you know so you're not going to try to replace both bulls and heifers from the same herd if you're relatively small you have to be pretty darn large to really pull that off you have to be yeah more than pretty darn large you need to be really large to manage the the bull and female selection from the same pool of genetics if you're thinking but selecting your heifers that's yeah. pretty common yeah but you're you're going outsourced for bulls yep yeah. yeah you're not a closed herd per se right you're you're bringing genetics from outside so and then you were going to talk about cost too so what's what's your well i think there? the the other bit is is uh, i think oftentimes we get um the idea that we we need to do something you know dramatically different and that, that may be true, um, but we need to understand both the, the costs of doing that in terms of replacement female development is very expensive and, and in small numbers gets astronomically expensive. Um, and so there's, there's a trade-off between, well, do I tolerate maybe a little less genetic fitness in my environment for another animal that's markedly cheaper to produce and, and maintain or acquire uh, from an outside source. And so there's a, a balancing act. The other bit is, is if you produce something that's really different than what's commonly marketed in your marketing space and don't feed those animals clear to harvest um, and have some kind of targeted, you know, branded product or whatever, you may have substantial market discounts, um, which isn't by itself a reason not to do it. There's lots of folks make money with cattle that are discounted all the time because the input costs are markedly lower in those, so or can be. And so just thinking through that really carefully from an economic standpoint is really, really important. Yeah, and I think as you bring up several good points there, I, w I want to go back to when you said size, making my own. So if I'm making my own replacement heifers, that makes sense. I don't have EPDs. I don't have some of the selection tools. Is that an area where I'd want to use some other 
type of testing to figure out what's the genetic potential of those animals, or would that even apply if I make my own crossbred? Yeah, I think if you're if you're in the if if you're in the commercial mentality and you're focused on keeping your own replacement heifers and you're buying outside bulls, you're going to use the genetic tools that come with those bulls as the selection criteria for them and, and select them presumably to build sire or be the sires of replacement heifers. You don't necessarily need the EPDs on the commercial heifers to make that work. Um, if you're going to do bulls and females from the same herd and basically emulate some kind of seed stock system, then having those genetic tools is really important. You know, depending on the breed and crosses, some of the tools might work okay and some of the tools might not work particularly well so you gotta 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 do that homework um, before you start down the process and and in response to the second part of the question where you talked about if i'm going to end up with a composite and i want to maintain this and make it as a purebred herd of my own what size should it be and you said large very large can you put some numbers on that or do you have a ballpark idea yeah so the, the the successful um closed herd composite populations um, have really been generated out of you know herds that are at least a thousand maybe upwards of 5,000 head to minimize you know chances of inbreeding and give you enough genetic diversity to have some selection opportunity as, as you move ahead um, small ones where you create a, a herd where you potentially do sire daughter matings um, you know the inbreeding coefficient and chance for um, uh, discovery of uh, recessive genetic defects goes up significantly like 25 to 50 percent i mean you can you can make some really bad matings by accident that have bad consequences so i think one more thing and in the the question wasn't specific what the goals are right and so yeah. bob mentioned like we're, if we're trying to if we're trying to fit an environmental niche then i think that kind of makes sense but i think you know the other thing to think about is there if if it's a you know if it's a specific marketing goal or if it's a specific type of animal might also think about doing um, some advanced reproductive technologies, right? Where we're not making our own composite line, but we can find genetics that we really like and work in our system. And we could, you know, do artificial insemination, we could do embryo transfer, we could do, you know, any of those things. And instead of going towards a more stable composite, we just end up with a whole bunch of a very similar type of animal and it might it might open up some windows as far as like bob mentioned availability of the types of animals might be a struggle if there's if you're building a composite line well if you kind of if you play with some different matings and you know what works you can do a lot of that in a very short period of time and and get in that the size of the herd could be very very small in that case right if that's what you're after and I, I agree with what Bob said, too. I think the other thing to think about is not just what you want, but what's going to fit into your product marketing strategy. So if, you know, if small, low lactation animals work in your system, that's great. But if you put them in the feed yard and they don't grow, it, it's going to be a challenge. So I th- there might be some other ways to get to meet your production goals without just necessarily building your own composite herd. I did a great point, Brian. How do you, how do you combine some of them? We've talked about those on past episodes with some of the reproductive technologies. And you don't want to just look at just what's my genetic plan, but also how am I going to implement it? And yep. so adding in that repro component, you can really amplify some of the things, good or bad, right? Yep. If you don't make the yep. right decisions. Yep. More, can... more mistakes faster, <laughs> potentially, if you don't do your homework. So, yep. so but I think you, you, which, what I'm hearing both of you guys say, though, is maybe take a, a step back and clearly 
identify what are my goals? What am I trying to achieve? Step one. And can I get there with anything that's out there? You guys didn't explicitly say that, but it's kind of implied by your answer. A lot of us want to do our own thing, make our own way. And if I can do it with the tools that are available, that's resources, time, energy I can devote to other areas of the operation. Yeah. And, and you know, locally, you, it's, it's easy for us to think we need to operate independently. But the odds of you, unless you're in some area of the United States where there are very, very few cows, there are people producing beef cattle around you. What are they doing? How are they managing the same environmental challenges that you are? Um, may provide some some good insights on on steps that you could take as as a breeder to, to manage that so absolutely we had another listener question and this question is re- relative to crossbreeding and I think this is a, a great question because many people will encounter this we've talked before and Bob you've even told us before about how we want to have a crossbreeding program we may want to have English and continental we want to have a couple breeds because we want to take advantage of heterosis and Bob you've mentioned, Heterosis is an important trait, especially for things that are lowly heritable like repro. So other Bob, Bob and other Bob. (laughs) So this question is, as a commercial cow-calf, I switch back and forth between two breeds of bulls. Each breed is used a few years, then I switch to the other breed. I retain all my own females. Am I getting benefit from heterosis as I continue to use these increasingly crossed females? Yeah, it's a great question, um, and the, the, the short answer is yes, you are getting um, benefit um, of uh, particularly maternal heterosis. You're getting some individual calf heterosis as well, but uh, maternal heterosis is worth, um, uh, in today's market, somewhere probably in the 100 to $150 a cow per year range uh, in terms of added value to um, the system, and so it's worth paying attention to, and so it's a, a great, great question. Why is it, um, why is it worth that? Yeah, the, the primary advantages of maternal heterosis are uh, extended um, lifetime productivity. So cow, crossbred cows last longer in the production system than straight bred cows do. From There's lots of data on this particular topic. Um, and they produce um, basically an additional calf in their lifetime. That, that length of productive life um, uh, is extended, and it's pr- principally extended. There's some health benefits, health, you know, animal health components and, and so forth that, that are included in there. Um, but the primary one is reproductive fitness. Those keep, cows keep reproduce better. They're keeping them a little more fertile. Yep, they're and a little more fertile than straight bred cows. But they're a little more fertile. They're a little more fertile. Um, and so, you know, having um, another calf every year decreases replacement female costs, adds additional revenue stream because you sell that replace or that heifer that would have been a replacement into the marketing channel. Um, so there's there's lots of economic advantage from um, the maternal heterosis side. Um, and so the listener's question was, you know, this bull rotation thing, and that's what we would call a two-breed rotation in time. So you use a set of bulls for a period of time and then rotate them out to another breed. Um, that's a two-breed rotation in time. And in a two-breed rotation in time, the literature estimates say between somewhere at 50 to say half to two-thirds of the heterosis that an F1 cow would express. So um, you're capturing a a pretty big chunk of it, not as much as if you had true F1 cows, but uh, certainly uh, a fairly simplistic system that allows you to capture um, a, a pretty sizable chunk of maternal heterosis. 
incidentally, it's it's about the same amount as if you used um, F1 bulls um, and kept them. Uh, so you had F1 cows made it F1 bulls or half and half breed composition. Produces about half the heterosis of, of the, the F1. So. Yep. And you've got some calculators or online tools if people are interested in this. They can yeah, so there's um, uh, an excuse to self-promotion, but there's a good resource. Um, uh, it's in the Beef Sire Selection Manual. So if you just go Google that, Beef Sire Selection Manual, it's available at ebeef.org. Uh, and the particular table I'm looking at is Table 7 on page 33 of that document. Um, and it's got all kinds of different breeding systems and how much retained heterosis um, that you get out of uh, those particular breeding systems. Excellent. And we will put that link in the show notes. Thanks for that. I think that was a great question. Now we'll shift gears and move away from breeding to think about feeding. So Philip, I'm going to turn to you and and ask you, and this is from a, a listener and they ask a question. And the question, they had a dairy background, they said is, Uh, Should I or should I not use BMR corn silage in beef cattle? Is it as beneficial as it is in dairy cattle? So I'm going to have to I'm going to have to back up and have you help me understand exactly what BMR corn silage is and what are the benefits that that are seen in dairy cattle before we get to the main question. Give me some background. So BMR stands for brown midrib, which is a variety of corn um, that is has a lower lignin content um, in the stalk and the leaf and so that it is more digestible so it's a mutation that they have selected for so that that plant is more digestible there are also sorghum varieties of bmr as well but dairies use it because in a dairy situation there's a limited amount of starch that we can put in a dairy cow's diet Um, and not have some rumen health problems and things like that because just the total volume of feed that 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 dairy cow eats. And so we have to maintain a good proportion of forage in that diet. And so I need that forage to be very high quality and very highly digestible forage so I can maximize milk production from that dairy cow. And so using a corn silage that is more digestible is one way of doing that. And so that those dairies can make improve the feed efficiency and the milk production of those dairy cows. So it's used in in dairies. Is it listening to your explanation? Is it also used in feed yards or other high what I would say high performance settings? Um, it could be used. I'm not a, aware of how much BMR corn silage is used. Um, I just I know it is out there and. And, it's, and, it, and it, it works. I mean, it is more digestible. It adds energy to the diet, but it, it obviously is probably a higher cost than traditional corn varieties. Um, and so in a feedlot situation, though, I don't know how much of it is actually used um, just because in a, in a commercial feed yard anyway, we're not feeding a whole lot of corn silage. We're, we got corn silage in that starter, and then we're in the, you know, in three or four weeks, we've cut that down to, you know, 10% of the diet. So we're not using a whole lot of corn silage in those type of diets. Depending, and depending on where they are. And from this listener question, it looks sounds like they have dairy background experience and maybe even have the setup. And now they're feeding some beef cattle. And, and the question being, should I feed it or is there enough advantage there or not? And what you're saying is, could be... We don't have a lot of experience with it on the beef cattle feeding side, especially not like on the dairy side. No, but so I found a couple of uh, research studies that looked at using it in uh, feedlot diets or in, in, in growing finishing calves. And so 
kind of the explanation we talked about there with the dairy, the benefit is really tied to how much of that corn silage you're going to have in the diet. So in the study, diets that only had 15% corn silage in it, there was no improvement in average daily gain of those calves compared to a traditional corn silage. Um, when we got up to 45% corn silage, there was about two-tenths of a pound per day gain increase with the BMR variety. And then when we got up to... Two-tenths um, of a pound increase in gain, in gain per day? Per day. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, and then when we got up to 80% um, corn silage in the diet, it was, it, was up, it was double that. So it got up to about four-tenths of a pound per day improvement in gain compared to the uh, traditional corn variety. And so I think from the, the producer's question of whether it's economical and beneficial, it, it's all tied then to how much you're going to include in the diet of those animals. And so then that dictates the economics of that situation of how much you can afford to pay for that BMR variety. I'm doing the math in my head going, you know what, if I fed like 180% of the diet as corn silage, I'm, I'm gaining an extra pound. That's huge. But that's yeah. Philip, Philip's not going to respond to that. Well, I'm it. I'm it's like, yeah, yeah. But, but the data supports it's, it has an advantage, right? So I, and I'm, I guess I'm reading into the question a little bit. So if this is a dairyman that is feeding feeders on the side and he's – he has corn, one corn silage pit, right, and it contains round midriff corn, then if that's what he's going to feed anyway, like, we're, it, we're, I mean, he says something about cost, but if that's, what, if, if that's what you've got, you can expect an advantage from doing that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, if you feed enough. If, 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 if it's enough of If you feed enough, right, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Because probably, even though realistically, I'll bet it was an advantage in those lower scenarios, just harder to detect. Based, yeah. on, based on how they did the studies, right? So it's just a small advantage, but you can see those bigger ones. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just thinking of a scenario where, you know, this is what I have. And so so probably our advice would be work with a nutritionist to maximize that, whatever percent of your diet is, what's your target performance for that group of feeders. But if it's what you've got, yeah, you, you can probably expect a little bit of advantage from it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, and interesting Philip, because I wasn't familiar with that, it sounds like it's used more on the on the dairy side, but it's all about the inclusion rate in that diet and how much difference it will make if you're if you're feeding. But sounds like could be an advantage on the feeder side if we change this question and we ask about beef cows versus dairy cows. Is that an area that you would think that intuitively? I know you don't have research on that, but give me your thoughts. Would that be an advantage or no? It's going to be harder to pay off, I think, um, in that situation to spend the extra dollars on the um, BMR variety because we're going to feed those beef cows ad libitum. So they're going to eat more of it because it's more digestible, and but they're not going to be producing a heavier birth weight calf when right. we're feeding it through the winter into, third gest uh, into late gestation. All we're going to do is make those cows extra fat um, by using that higher – energy corn silage yeah and we've had a dr hilton who we've had on the podcast before so i i remember him saying dairy cows are like race cars so you have to put in the right fuel beef cows are like old farm trucks you have to put in the right fuel it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense that you're <laughs> any in, fuel right yeah <laughs> any fuel yeah you, you don't have to put in racing fuel in those it's not going to give you much advantage so we're starting the cold. That's it. <laughs> as long as it starts in the cold. So 
Well, we appreciate all those listener questions. And if you have other questions for us, you can certainly send them to us. I'll, I'll mention that we do have another podcast called Bovine Science with BCI. Uh, and we will, several of us will be at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association meeting here in a few weeks. And we'll have, BCI will have a booth there. If you want to stop by and drop us off a question in person, we'd be happy to hear from you. Or you can shoot us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Mm-hmm.